Hi, this is Dr. Jose Saldivar, and I'm here with the First Year Experience Podcast. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about community and connecting the work of the university to the community. I have two guests with me today, and I'm going to allow them to introduce themselves. Uh, my first guest is uh, Francisco Guajardo, professor in the Department of Organization and School Leadership at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and the executive director of the B3 Institute at UTRGV. B3 stands for Bilingual, Bicultural, Biliterate. Thank you. And uh, Robert Longoria, Program Specialist at uh, Student Academic Success. So thank you, uh, both of you, for joining me this afternoon. Um, Dr. Wajardo, and, I, and I'm going to call you Frank. I've known Dr. Wajardo. I've known Frank since I was a high school student. And I've invited him today. I've invited Robert as well, because I wanted to engage in a conversation about community. I think for a lot of our students, there is this sense that when they come to the university, they, they have to disengage from their community. And if you look at a lot of early research in terms of college success, student success, it, 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 it's kind of um, the expectation is that students will leave their community and enter into this new world of the academy or the institution. And yet, you know, Frank here, uh, Frank, you've managed to connect your work, your academic work, your personal work, to your community, to the surrounding communities, was that a was that a deliberate thing? And and why did you go about that? Why did you choose that path? I think it's on one hand deliberate, and uh, on on the other hand, I think out of utility. Um, so the deliberate part, I think, is is really the way. I was raised at home, but also raised by adults in the community where I grew up. There was uh, a, a clear sense of community where I grew up in the small town of Elsa, which is where you're from as well. Mm, yes. And and so, you know, there were a lot of very positive forces who, you know, who were not uh, family members necessarily, although with family there were a lot of positive forces there as well, but but I think that if I were to only talk about family, that would be the family. But I think that this was more than family. It was it was other folks who, you know, who lived down the street, who lived, you know, around town, people who were in the school, and so my upbringing tended to be a very healthy upbringing in terms of my own, I think, social, um, I think ways of connecting i think cultural ways of connecting there was there was a, a a heightened level i think of of adaptability in terms of being able to move from you know physical uh social cultural spaces even political spaces i would i would argue so that when i went to college um i went uh to a school that was 300 miles north of home and you know, to an environment that was urban in the the city of Austin, to UT at Austin, I felt that there were levels of underpreparedness for me in terms of my own academic readiness. You know, I I I I knew that I was lacking in a lot of the academic type of skills, but I was so ready in terms of. Uh, social adaptability, cultural adaptability, 
I was so ready in terms of relational ways of getting by, you know, with people I would meet or even with the friends that I had who went to college with me. And so I think that I had developed a particular kind of social and cultural and political IQ that in many ways, you know, were the really important skill sets for me because I could then negotiate the academic uh, shortcomings that I had. And, and I was able to do that in pretty short order. And so once I was able to do that, I think that then I became a very successful college student. But I don't think that I would have been at that level of readiness had it not been for community and what community did for me when I was 10, 11, 15, 18 years old. And so it's what I understood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's what I understood, you know, going to college and then even becoming a, you know, a member of the professional ranks. So in some ways, I think because I had an understanding of that, and we used to talk about that a lot when I was in college with my buddies from back home, we used to talk about, wow, this is so good that we were from there, that we are from there. And so, you know, we had a level of, I think, of awareness. So when I became a teacher, I brought that awareness with me. And so that's the intentional part. That's the deliberate part. The other part, you know, the utility part, I think, is is that it just made sense. It To me, it seemed like not only from an intellectual standpoint, but also from an emotional standpoint, psychological standpoint, it made sense to me that I connect my own teaching and learning, my work as an educator, to to what was happening in the community because I felt that students would be more excited about what they were doing in school. Mm -hmm. I felt that students would connect, you know, and so that's the utility part. So it, I thought that I could use that to my own advantage and to the success that I would, you know, be able to have as an educator. So I think, I think both of those, I think, you know, it was, it was the way I was raised and it was also, you know, just something that made sense. It's, it sounds like such a, it was such a rich experience, I think, coming from a place like that, coming from a place that can give you uh, a number of skills that allow you to be successful. But I don't know, do I feel like society, I feel like I could, the institution doesn't necessarily, even schools themselves don't place a lot of value on that. And so, and when I, when I say that I speak to I look at my job. My job is to prepare students for college uh, or to help ease in that transition. And yet mm, the majority, the overwhelming majority of the literature overlooks the community, overlooks what it is that our students bring with them from from their homes. And, and I know um, I'm from Elsa. I'm biased. Right. Um, but I know every community has this richness, has has these things that that our students can pull from. To, to inform them, inform their decision-making and help them negotiate the university, help them uh, develop relationships. Um, why, do you, why do you think the community is overlooked? Why is it, is it, isn't, isn't it given maybe the importance that it deserves? I think your question is, is why isn't it that way in higher education? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I think that if you look at at industry, you look at economic, you know, um, sort of um, the economic sector that may be private, 
they're all about community. Mm-hmm. It's like you cannot win at sales mm-hmm. if you're HEB, you're Walmart, you're the mom and pop. You you cannot survive if you don't respect community, if you don't like even pretend, right, that you <laughs> yeah. appreciate it, that you love it. I mean, just just look at at any kind of marketing or public relations effort, and they're all guided by, you know, community. We love community. Yeah. yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. look at the San Antonio Spurs commercials, you know, and HEV. It's all about the community, and it's, yeah. you know, it's all around. I mean, they got Manu Ginobili and, and Paul Gasol and Kawhi Leonard, and they made them all Mexican. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so why has but, it... But, why? But, but I think your question is about why has higher ed not? Yeah, why isn't because it the other <laughs> The other sectors have fallen in line. <clears throat> the other sectors are dependent on community. Higher education does has not been, I think, convinced that it is dependent on community. And in fact, one could argue that higher education is, has been intentionally disconnected from community by design. It it has, and I think this is this is a question that's an age old question. I mean, going back to even you know the universities that sprouted out of you know Cambridge and Oxford, you know that in the fourteen hundreds and fifteen hundreds, it was to create an intellectual elite, and the way you do that is by removing them from community, remove them from the impulses mm-hmm. that are very much of the working people. That's not what we want to, uh, you know, perpetuate. Yeah. We don't want to reproduce that. Yeah. To the contrary. We want to create people who are so different from that because that is a proletariat, because that is the oi polloi, that is the impulse. And we are moving away from the impulse. We are creating generations of intellectuals who are above that. Mm-hmm. So the very nature, I think, of higher education, the very nature of the university, its DNA has been the opposite of community. Yeah. Now, but but hang on. That was sustainable when you were not educating the proletariat. Mm-hmm. That was sustainable when you could survive as an as, as a university. When you could survive because you committed to that function, the tension begins when poor people get into college. Now you got a tension because those poor people bring their own social realities to the, to the university. Mm-hmm. You see, before in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, yeah. you were not getting poor people going to the university. Or if they were, if there were poor people going to the university, they were already members of the privileged. Mm-hmm. Poor farmers, white. You begin to see a change, a tension, if you will, in the 19th century, late. You know, it's almost a product of the Industrial Revolution. Hey, we need more people who can manage plants or whatever. Mm-hmm. Definitely in the 20th century. And then a huge change, a huge bump, at least in the American experience, after the war. Mm-hmm. Because then you begin to get people, you know, in the late 1940s, mid to late 1940s, who now believe that they should have this because they fought for their country. So then, and this is is the tension of the 1960s. Mm -hmm. This is the tension of the 1970s. 
you begin to see global shifts in the demographic makeup of the people who are now occupying those desks and seats in higher education. Whereas before you could certainly perpetuate easily, you know, that, that, that sort of thinking of higher ed, you have the 20th century, mid to late 20th century, and now the 21st century, where you have, I think, profound cultural tension at the university. Mm -hmm. You are an example of that. I am an example of that. And Roberto is an example of that. We come from, you know, to use an old word, we come from the proletariat. Yeah. And, and the DNA of this place was not set up for us. But now there is this tension that is undeniable and we need to resolve it. So do you see yourself with the work that you do? Is, is it is one of your goals to remake the university? Yes. Yes. And, and you know, and, and I think it's one of my goals at, at, at a number of different levels. I mean, you know, one is the intellectual level that, that I think I have an understanding of the history of higher ed and how mm -hmm. it's been exclusionary, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I understand that. But also I have a very emotional investment, a psychological investment, even a spiritual investment, just because of, you know, the people who raised me. And, and these people who raised me did not have access to this. Yeah. Right. And, and so, so that is complex because they didn't have access to this and yet they were smart and wise and educados. Yes. Without access to this. Yeah. So what does that say? If they were smart and they were educados, and they didn't have access to it, that means that they have something there that can help inform higher education. So now, okay, now you said this that's part of your mission, is to remake the university, to maybe acknowledge the local intellectuals, the our working class intellectuals, the people that we grew up with, the people that have informed, informed us intellectually, spiritually, you, from the outset, you said you were the director of the B3 Institute. How do you, how, how do you balance your role as an administrator now? You work for the institution, within the institution, and your, your, your very clearly defined mission of remaking the university. Do you find them at all in... Uh, in tension with one another? Or do they do they complement each other and do they support each other? Yeah, I think there's there's tension, clearly, just because of, you know, what we described earlier, right? That there is this sort of historical DNA in higher education. But we're also in a, in, in a, in a very interesting, intriguing, and, you know, exciting, compelling time in history just because of where we work. I mean, we are at a university that by design, reiterated itself you know by design the university of texas rio grande valley is attempting to shake you know it's sort of like cultural negativity those doldrums of yesteryear mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by design by becoming and so it said right in its purpose and in, yeah. in 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 the principles that, that guide this place they said the board of regents of the university of texas mostly white men said that we want to create a bilingual, bicultural, biliterate institution. And so we have, I think, not only much greater permission, but but also much greater malleability, yeah. which I was not seeing 10 years ago. 
when you and I started to work in this place way back in, you know, 2002, 2003, mm -hmm. this place did not have the kind of institutional flexibility, malleability, you know, or nimbleness. I mean, I, it's not nimble yet, but I think that that those of us who work at, almost like in the cracks, mm -hmm. okay, those cracks have become fissures. They've become much bigger now. Yeah. And they've given us much greater, like, play space that we did not have when I first got to this place. Mm -hmm. And so there is tension, but I think that that there's also tension that is 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 able to be shaped and defined so i'll say that right that's okay. that's one level of response to you the the other level of response to you is this um i find it malleable because i want to find it malleable i find this place miserable <laughs> no no hang on if i found this place miserable i would find any place i work with miserable I find this place malleable. I could find any place I work in malleable. So a lot of this is also the kind of disposition that I have developed and come to, mm -hmm. right? And so this is all about agency, personal agency. It, it's almost like, you know, if you're going to be miserable in Elsa, you're going to be miserable in Austin. You're going to be miserable in Palo Alto. You're going to be miserable anywhere. Yeah. You know, so, and so did, the greater did, possibility of you being miserable, at least. And so your disposition, is that informed by the community? Yes. Yes. I, I think that, you know, my disposition is informed by those people and those physical metaphorical spaces that, is, that have shaped my mental state, my physical state, my emotional state. And those people and places have been good people. I've seen them as that. I've interpreted them as that. I've made sense of them as that. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm talking about these people who, gave, who, who have given me so much are also seen as people who are bad. <laughs> so, yeah, so this is all about disposition, I think, yeah, right? Yeah. It's, yeah it's, so, but but I, I think that that even though some people may see those, you know, sources as bad, I think that that mostly not. I think that mostly those people are seen as good people, are seen as good places. Like yeah. my community is a good place. My people are, are good people, right? Yeah. But, but I think those of us who are thoughtful and think about these things will say, no, you know, Walo Basan es servicioso. Es servicioso. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I think that most people will see Walo Basan as that. I'm using Walo as, as a specific example, but also as, as a symbol and as a metaphor, right? Because yeah. I see Walo Basan as that. Some people may see Walo Basan as, as something less than yeah. that. I don't. Yeah. I see him as, you know, a man whose virtue was to help other people. I see Esperanza Salinas, serviciosa. Yeah. Ella va a ser servicio para la comunidad, you know? And there's so many people in the place I grew up in who were like that. You know, and who are like that? That's that's how I see those people. And so I, I've taken, you know, energy from them. I've taken spirit from them, you know, and, and have developed my own sense of agency, I think, because of that. That, of course, is a secondary level because my parents were the first one. My brothers mm, were the obviously. first one. Yeah, 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 for sure. <clears throat> Frank, what advice... What advice do you give? Do you give students that are coming to the university? coming into the institution, their first experience with, with, with anything like this, 
is the the day they step foot on this on this campus. What advice do you give them? Those that are coming from communities that are much like yours, much like mine. What advice do you give them to help them be successful? To help them maybe see the value in their community, or, or and to encourage them to bring that with them along with them to the university. Yeah. So it's an interesting phrasing, you know, and framing even of the question, um, because I think that the way the question is posed puts a lot on students, mm-hmm. right? And and in some ways, you know, I think that the other part of the question should be, what can the institution do to help students, you know, see things those ways? Because, you know, when you're 18 years old, mm-hmm. you know, you you. Uh, you know, you you will make sense of things according to the questions that are being posed to you. And, you know, if they're bad questions being posed to you, well, then, you know, you're making sense of things based on, you know, your responses to those bad, bad questions. But OK, so but I'll, let's, re- I'll let's re- re- Well, let's rephrase it. OK. What can the university do? Yeah. To help students bring bring those experiences with them? That's a hell of a question. <laughs> This is, this is what I think. I think that that we as teachers, and you know, we as a university, should help students from our communities see the goodness in their own lives, and we should see our students see the goodness in their families. We should we should encourage our students through systems of inquiry mm-hmm. to find the virtue in their community. Because when they do that, they will see the virtue in their own lives as well. And so that that to me then sets up a set of conditions where students will live much happier lives. I think that students will sleep better at night. I think students will be about a much more enlightened sense of readiness, you know, to be able to think openly about things, you know, because they feel good about it, because they feel like, you know, I come from a good place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I. You know, we all know that 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 a lot of people, you know, who come from small towns, you know, they they are of of an idea that they couldn't, you know, get out of that small town, you know, mm-hmm. fast enough mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it was the backwoods. But you know, there are people who help me think about my community differently, and I think that that's been one of the best gifts. You know, that I thought about my community. And, and so it has shaped my disposition and I think my my approach to teaching, to research, and to service in such an enlightened way. It's really, so I think that if we as an institution shaped students to think about the goodness in their lives, that I think that we wouldn't think about community negatively. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so we would see it positively and we would ask questions about the ills in our community differently. Because this is not to put our head in the sand because, you know, this is not to dismiss the ills because we got a lot of those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, check out the levels of obesity and levels of diabetes, you know, levels of of maybe abuse and mm-hmm. all that. Yeah. Yeah. Amongst the highest in the country. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're wealthy and you're a member of the elite, you know, no, that's not what leads. No. In, in no. the interpretation of who you are. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, look at the most sick American right now. The most sick American. Who is the most sick American right now? You know who it is, right? <laughs> right? We know who the most sick American is, mentally, even physically, even. Mm-hmm. 
But that's not the lead in how we interpret him. Mm-hmm. He's wealthy. Right? He's got power. He's a rock star. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when you're poor, the voladita, you know, yeah, oh, you're sick. Yeah, and part of it is because you're poor. Yeah. So I think that a lot of students who we get who may be quote unquote low income mm-hmm. bring a lot of value with them. It's our job to help them find that value so that they can build power and build strength that is personal. And then that translates to agency much more quickly mm-hmm. than not. And so I think that, that that's our job as an institution. Our job is is like, you know, like like Tupac to find you know, those roses in the cracks. Mm-hmm. Like for him, it was, there's tremendous beauty in these kids from Oakland that I see. Mm-hmm. Maybe other people don't, but I do. And I'm going to help them, yeah. you know, through my own sort of aesthetic. Yeah. Oh, that's powerful. That's powerful. Tell me about the work of the B3 Institute, Frank, and how maybe that work... Helps you fulfill the mission. Helps you mm-hmm. fulfill your own your own sort of mission. Yeah. So you know, I it, I wasn't necessarily thinking about you know some of these things. You know, like at least bilingualism. You know, when I first became an educator, because I, I I didn't come up, you know, through training in bilingual education as a professional. Even though I was in 1971 when I stepped into my my first grade class at Ed Couch Elementary, Marta Longoria was was uh, tasked with delivering instruction in a brand new bilingual education class. And so I was a guinea pig in bilingual education in 1971. I didn't know this until five years ago. Wow. And I found out through an oral history with an elder named Fred Guerra. El papá de Fred Guerra, who's a professor here, right? So Fred Guerra, the elder, retired, was a school principal at Ford Elementary School in PSJA. And so he brought a newspaper to me that showed all the experimental bilingual education classrooms across Hidalgo County. And then I opened this thing, and there's Ed Couch Elementary. There's room three, Marta Longoria. And there I am, right in the middle, as a first-grade kid. And I said, what? I was an (laughs) (laughs) expert. And so, okay, so... I grew up with bilingual education, but unwittingly, I didn't know. So then, you know, I finished high school and go to college and then come back home to become a teacher, not going through a preparation, a formal preparation on bilingual ed, but through the years as a high school teacher. And then through the years as a university professor, I pay attention to it and I'm learning some stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, this is such a powerful kind of way, you know, to to raise children mm-hmm. and to raise adults even through more than one language. And it just so happened that it was a gift that I had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a gift that I had because I happened to come from a home where my father and my mother only knew Spanish. And so I had to learn it. Yeah. And then it was a gift that I had because in school they were teaching me English. But it wasn't part of a design. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it happened. So then when I get into the professional ranks and I get into higher education, and then I began to pay attention to these things, I'm thinking... Hey, you know, this this can probably work well in higher education. So then, you know, one of my colleagues, Joy Esquerdo, who was another high school student of mine who, you know, grew up right next to your house, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Elsa, you know, bilingual education professor, you know, I learned some stuff from her. And then she and I, 
you know, with other colleagues, we found the Center for Bilingual Studies. And this is like 2010, 2011. I'm paying more attention to it. Then we get the merger. And so the Board of Regents say B3. And I'm thinking this just makes complete sense. And I read more up, more on it. And then I, you know, I, I, I become, you know, sort of, I, I, I'm, I'm in these spaces of re-examining Gloria and Saldua, who I first read in 1988 when I took Ramon Saldivar's Chicano narrative course at UT at Austin when I was in graduate school, and Ramon Saldivar asked us to read Gloria and Saldua. And so I read Gloria and Saldua in 1988, mm -hmm. hot off the press. Hot off the press. I made sense of it differently way back in 1988. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, hey, this is good stuff. Yeah, yeah, she's sort of speaking to me, right? Yeah. But I wasn't thinking at different levels of complexity. Mm -hmm. I wasn't there yet. You know, I wasn't mature enough to see the much bigger picture. I only saw it as Ansaldúa's, you know, literature and analysis and sort of, you know, historical understanding made sense to me. Yeah. But not how it was making sense to everybody else. So I revisit Ansaldúa 20 years later or more. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, wow, actually almost 30. No, we had 25 so. <laughs> and I'm thinking, ah, this, this makes a lot of sense. And then to, to sort of revisit this notion that the wild tongue was happening at this very place where I was working. Mm -hmm. You know, the taming the wild tongue. Yeah. And then it becomes a very political thing with me. You know, I mean, it, everything has always been political. And I think I've understood it that way, that it's all political. Teaching, it's all political. You know, this podcast you're doing, it's all political. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> you know, it's all, and, and so we all know it, right? Yeah. I mean, what they were doing in Cambridge and Oxford, you know, back in the 1400s and 1500s, intensely political. Mm -hmm. Perpetuate the political status quo. So it's all political. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it made sense historically. And it also made sense just in terms of of affirming our own humanity in this part of the world. So to create a university that can become bilingual, bicultural, biliterate, just makes complete sense. Not against the multiculturalism, not against the multilingualism, not against any of that. I'm all for that. Yeah. But we haven't gotten the buy right in South Texas. So we got to get the buy right, and then we can build from that. So... So how do I feel about it? I, I mean, I feel completely invested in it. You know, it's a personal thing. It's a professional thing. You know, it's an emotional thing. It's a spiritual thing. You know, it's an intellectual thing. And it's also a, a, a community development thing. You know, and, and it's also a rehabilitating ourselves and our institutions thing. How so? Well, to get it right. To get right all of those things that we did that were highly oppressive in terms of language oppression. You know, in terms of cultural oppression, like you can't be like this, mm -hmm. because if you are like this or if you speak like this, you're going to be punished mm -hmm. or you'll be subject to remediation. We need to fix that. Mm -hmm. Now, we haven't fixed that, but we're on the path toward fixing that. Yeah, that's what I think we're doing. We're on the path towards fixing it as we are, I think, forging new ground in higher education. That I think I think we're doing that. Frank, where would you like to see the university in five years? So I, I would like to see this university as being um, perpetually responsive to community. 
Um, and, and the responsive is, is not, not a good word because mm. it suggests reaction. But I, I would like to see this community get ahead of things, you know, like, like building the infrastructure. You know, like it, we've been so lucky in the last 50 years that we haven't hit, been hit by Beulah again. Yeah. We're, we're, we're just not ready. No. We're not ready. You know, so we need to be about building the right kind of, you know, infrastructure, you know, the right kind of highways, the right kind of drainage system, the right kind of, you know, uh, developments, you know, and housing and those kinds of things. And we're, we're not there, man. We get hit by a Category 3 hurricane in the Rio Grande Valley. We're going to be so devastated. I would like to see the, 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 the university get ahead of that. And we're nowhere close to that. Mm -hmm. You know, we just created a civil engineering department. This is yeah. brand new. Yeah. Right? So, you know, I think that the civil engineering department is going to be much more attentive to the needs of the area when kids from the area become members of the faculty. See, that's what you'd like to see. You'd oh, yeah. Like to see... Yes, I mean we, you know, we need to we need to be about faculty members who understand and care for community, you know, because a long time ago, four or five hundred years ago, those were not the faculty members. They were just interested in writing the next like sort of philosophical tre treatise, you know, on mm. what Machiavelli said, yeah, on what Shakespeare said, yeah. right, yeah. on what Copernicus said. Mm -hmm. You know, now I think we need to be much more responsive to why is it that when we get a two-inch rain that we, like, endanger mm -hmm. 100,000 people. That's the unit of analysis right mm -hmm. now. But, you know, engineering faculty members don't necessarily pay attention to that because they're not raised with those kinds of issues. Yeah. Well, and they don't have to live with the, that day-to-day. -day. No, that's right. They don't, they don't have to live with it. But, you know, if, if we get a kid from a colonia who's the next civil engineering professor, that kid lived with it, and that mm -hmm. kid has a much greater, I think... Um, chance to work on those kinds of issues that may be research that may be you know service you know and maybe through her teaching you know she or he does it that way yeah you know so that that's i i think that this university needs to be much more about the community and with the community and i think that we're headed in that direction but we got a ways to go i think we got a ways to go now because you're from the area, you grew up in a colonia and you become a member of the faculty. That doesn't mean, that's no guarantee mm -hmm. that you're going to pay attention, right? But the, there's a much greater chance. Yeah, obviously. I think that's part of it. Much greater chance. Okay. What the institution does to develop those faculty also is important mm -hmm. to increase the chances. And so I think that institutionally, we also need to be ready to infuse curriculum, professional development mm -hmm. with community-based sort of uh, standards. It's a bad word, right? But, you know, with, with yeah, those kinds of ideas. Yeah. yeah, with those kind of ideas. You know, in, in the hard sciences, in, in the literature, I think probably in literature, in, the, in, in, in uh, liberal arts, in the humanities, and in the social sciences, I think we've moved, mm -hmm. you know, um, in those directions in much better ways than in the hard sciences. And I would even suggest that the reason that we don't have as many, say, Mexican-American, you know, kids in STEM professions is because we haven't moved in those directions, in more cultural directions. Mm. You know, and sometimes even Latino faculty members in engineering yeah. will tell the students, you know, it's not about you being Mexican-American, it's about you working hard. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is why we have so few of us in STEM. Because it is about you being Mexican American. Yeah. 
you know, and becoming an engineer based on that. Yeah. Because well, if it's if it's not about that, then you become an engineer who's like neutral and doesn't care. Yeah. About the area. But if the if the community, if you recognize where you're from, if that's acknowledged, then that can inform your work and that can be powerful. Yes. That can I think be transformative. So. Yeah, and, and useful. Yeah. Right? Useful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. But but we have not mutated that DNA enough because we still are, I would suggest, still living in the old DNA of Oxford and Cambridge rather than the DNA of the community university. Mm -hmm. We've made gains, but we're not there. It's a great hashtag, the community university. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we've talked about this for years. We've talked about this for years. I mean, 20 years we've been talking about yeah. this, right? And yeah. so, but, you know, we are now trying to move this university. Because this, this, this university is guaranteed next year. It's guaranteed by mm -hmm. legislative budget to get $750 million. It's guaranteed. Whatever we create that's a community university is not guaranteed to gain even one dollar. Yeah. So we may as well like try to participate in this to use from what we contribute already. Yeah. Because you pay taxes, I pay taxes, or whoever pays taxes. We all contribute to this. Yeah. Robert, do you have any questions or anything? You've been uh... No, I'm listening. I'm 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 processing. Why, uh, I mean, you mentioned, right, that it's important to have <clears throat> faculty that are from the community. What incentives are there for, for successful graduates to return to the Valley? You know, I think that incentives come in different ways. Most of the time we look at incentives, you know, within a very narrow kind of definition. And so incentives are defined often by the kind of resources, you know, you can offer you know, monetary resources, or you can give somebody a center, you know, to run. That's an incentive, right, to get your back or, you know, that sort of thing. Employability that is gainful and, you know, lucrative is an incentive. Um, we just don't have enough of those at the moment. And so we need to figure out ways to, to build, you know, greater incentives as we also democratize the meaning of incentive. And so that I think that, you know, incentive needs to also be like, you know, spiritual incentive. And by spirit, I'm not talking about religiosity, but I'm talking about, you know, what is it that we care about the most? And are we talking about those things? You know, what is it that drives our own emotional makeup? You know, and are we talking about those things as part of the discourse in higher education? Um you know, and so we, we have not done a good job with that, I have to tell you, lately. I think, you know, we have done a good job. You know, we had our previous president was all about that, right? I mean, so much so that he came across as real emo. But it was like such a gift yeah. because he spoke, you know, in spiritual and emotional ways. So he expanded what it means, you know, to, to incentivize this institution. Because, you know, you listen to him, you thought, okay, that's an incentive for me to go there. I want to work with that kind of guy. Right. So I think that that we need to expand what we mean by incentives. I think we need to create a narrative that is like an emotionally incentivized narrative. You know, that this is a good place. This is not, 
a place that is only defined by the pitiful indicators, if you will. But this is a place that is defined by the strength of people, you know, the, the family and, you know, community. And all those things are incentives to want to be here. Uh, we haven't sold that narrative well enough. And but, so I, but I think we've started. I think oh, no, for sure. And I, and I think, I, I think a, a, a testament to that is, uh, I mean, is your own story. Is your story and then... Um, I'm not going to ask you to do this, but to, to think about the number of, of faculty members that you, who you've worked with or brought along. And so I know for me, when I think of incentive, you know, I, I refuse to leave this university, even though, you know, the grass, there are greener pastures elsewhere because of my relationship to the community. Because I, because because we've had these long conversations um, about what it means to be a community university, and so for me the incentive has always been just the opportunity to come back. I could go make more money elsewhere, but feeling like like I can have a hand in in changing a community or improving a community or recognizing the the wealth in a community that keeps me here. It, it's that for me is enough incentive. And I, and I think we're seeing, we, we, there are a lot of faculty like that. There are local faculty. And I, I think that, that, that is a narrative that more and more, I think we are beginning to tell. Uh, the incentive that I think, you know, that I have most appreciated really at this university is the students. You know, we have like such beautiful students, you know, who, you know, I, they 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 care about things. You know, they're salt of the earth type of people. You know, they they it means something to them to come to a university and and to get university work done. It means something to them, and it means something to their families. And and you know, I think it means something to the neighborhood as well. Like that, that is, but you see, you don't see that incentive though, unless you're here, you don't, you don't get a sense for that incentive unless you are, you know, in their lives and you are, I think, learning from them and, you know, helping them learn. That's been, that's been uh, one of the greatest gifts, I think, you know, for me as, as a faculty member, it's what I miss most actually, you know, from in the, during this past year, when I moved into an administrative position. I have missed most the energy that I draw and the, I think, the emotion and the, you know, just the, the power that I draw from my interaction with students. Yeah, it's, it, that, that's been such a beautiful kind of experience for me in the 15 years that I've been here. And it was for me working at a high school for 12 years before. That is the greatest incentive. But I think that a lot of people don't, don't understand that unless they are in the environment. I was um, I was voting on uh, a Tuesday, and uh, I had the of the privilege of going and walking over to to exercise that. Uh, and I, I I walked into my library, which it's a walk away, uh, in La Jolla, and uh, I just found myself there, and I and I wanted, just because I I guess I was surrounded by just this energy of of just being open with people around me, surrounding me. And, uh, and I asked, because I'm not necessarily working directly on my thesis, but 
I, I always am in, indebted to my community to serve in some fashion. I, I thought, well, what have I done in the past year to serve my community? And I asked the head of the librarian. I grew up in I grew up in La Jolla, and they had an old library which transformed into a new one, got a new building, and I I haven't visited there quite often because I I just uh, I commute from uh, La Jolla to Edinburgh back and forth, and I don't I don't take the time sometimes to just n embed myself within my community because my commute takes me just long distances. And, but when I took the time to, to sit down, I asked, I asked questions, you know, what programs do you have running? What are your basic needs? Because I have a vested interest in, in multiple literacies, right? Community literacy, um, computer literacy, the ways that we learn knowledge, the way that our knowledge informs our actions and vice versa. And I asked, what are, what are some things that, that we can get going? And I'm, I mean, it's not, it's not something that I have to do, but it's something that I want to do because it's important, right? I mean, if you're not, I, I was listening to a, to a student and she said, well, why am I going to go vote? Why am I going to go? It's all the same. And there's this disillusionment. There's this perpetuating negativity, this, this consciousness of helplessness, of despair, and well, you know what? I asked her, I fundamentally disagree with you and I have a different perspective. How is it that we are, are changing our, our communities? How, how are we making a difference? If you're even in the face of absurdity to continue forward, I mean, that's courage. And, and I, I, you know, it, perhaps that informed my, my questioning, my, my asking of, of what resources do we have, because I have time sometimes on the weekend, and I need to do something. And you feel that pull, and you hear, you hear a, a, a volunteer there at the library that says, you know, I'm not going to college, I've, I'm 19, and, uh, you know, I just kind of want to work on my own just getting there. I don't want to... I don't want to go to college, and I, and I, and I, was, I, was, I was really puzzled by that. I was puzzled, and he said to me, well, you know, I don't, want to, I don't want to feel like I'm dependent on anyone if I get financial aid, which was to me just such a, a strange thing to hear. It was really perplexing to me. And this is someone that has been working there, and I asked, what do you want to do with your life? And he said, well, uh, I, want to, uh, I want to do art. I, I'm interested in artists. And I asked him, well, don't you know you come from a legacy of artists in the Valley? Javier Garza? Renee Saldana Jr., you know, there are various artists that are here. And I said, well, who are they? And he goes and he digs, and I look up on the internet, on the computer. Uh, well, these are the, oh, I've read them. Well, why aren't you creating art? What are you doing to, to move yourself? And so going back, going back and, and, and sort of listening to the, to the librarian there, listening to the student there, I asked, what are some frameworks we can do to, to create? And I didn't use the word frameworks. I said, what are some plans that we can do to, to facilitate this? Because if I'm here and I'm helping you, and then I get run over across the street, then this idea dies with me. But what can we do to sustain this? And so my question, I guess not too digressive, is what can, what can faculty do to engage in that communal aspect 
you mentioned that that this institution needs to shift, that there are frameworks and, and ways of knowing that we haven't reached yet, that those haven't been integrated yet. Culture is very hard to change. So how, what are some methodologies that we can do to sort of disassemble from ourselves, to become, I guess, defamiliar, right? Go through this defamiliarization process so we can unlearn and become more knowing of our community needs as faculty, as staff. Uh, this is a, this is a, I think a good opportunity, Frank. You know, you, you're going to have to leave, and um, so I think maybe this is a good good closing point for you. How do we sustain it? How do we unlearn, as Roberts asked? Yeah, I think that that it uh, it's in in the most basic ways. I think is where we find the answers to solve the most complex issues. So I think that the way we are raised, um, when we're raised well, it tends to be in relationship, in relationship that is trusting, where you know the parent and the child or the parents and the children really you know know each other well and they trust each other, and so then the product of that is a relationship that is built that is solid that you know through which you can sustain a lot you can sustain distress you can sustain change you can sustain ambiguity because people know each other well there's a relationship we tend to still have faculty members that don't know each other that well, even within departments. Um, if we were to work on building healthy departments because people know each other well, if we were to commit ourselves to having departments uh, know each other, you know, from one department to another, people within the same college, and then, of course, extrapolate that, you know, to a university-wide, institution-wide sort of dynamic, where people can be in relationship across departments and across colleges, then I think that we can sustain good work. Now, a lot of times the reasons that the re reason that a lot of good work does not become sustained is because it is in the absence of good trusting relationships. And so I think that the building of good relationships is absolutely fundamental for raising a family, for you know raising. A, Building a relationship, you know, like a marriage or a friendship or, you know, a, a, a business, if you will. You know, when things collapse, it tends to be because there are fractured relationships or not solid relationships. But when, when units invest in those things, then you have a chance to have a much greater history, you know, that is healthy. Uh, and I, I don't think the university is... Uh, you know, it does not apply in that analysis. I think the university is, is the same. It's like a big family. But it just so happens that universities tend to be dysfunctional families because people don't know each other well, you know, within departments, across departments, across colleges. And, and we haven't seen this sort of like institutional push to build a relationship across. Mm -hmm. 
you know and 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 i i mean i would even argue that the merger just i think exacerbated that because now we have you know two different communities that were not say solid healthy trusting communities now dealing with each other mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and so i but i mean i don't think we're at a loss because i think that this can certainly be done yeah but i think that there's intentionality you know around owning up to what is most fundamentally healthy which is about having people know each other trust each other and build together so if you get if you take care of that then you have a shot at sustained good practices so you see there's like contemporaneous processes here number one you got to build the good practices i think we've talked about some of that here in the last half hour plus but secondly you need to have a culture of an institution of a university of the large family where people trust each other and they do because they know each other and they know each other because they spend time talking you know and it's becoming increasingly hard by the way to do that because now people have like really good relationships with their phones not with each other necessarily so the distractors are much more profound So, you know, just in this experience here that we've had here in the last, you know, 30 minutes plus, I think that we've been able to, you know, connect in different ways because we don't have the distractions, even though I've been paying attention to my phone, too, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I got to get home because my mother, you know, (laughs) needs to be taken care of like at 3.30 today because the lady I hired leaves at 3.30, right? (laughs) And so they're buzzing me because I got to get home, right? But, But you see what I'm saying? And even that is connected to the relationship that I have over there. And so I think I, that's that's fundamental. And, you know, and that's fundamental from going back 2,000 years ago. That's fundamental to going back 10,000 years ago. That's fundamental. That's something that hasn't been changed in the nature of, of humanity. We still emotionally, intellectually, psychologically, spiritually, you know, depend on each other. And when we don't, I have to say... It, so now you're talking about the, you know, the early onsets of depression, early onsets of trouble with human beings. I mean, that's more complex than that, obviously. But, you know, when we're solid, you know, we trust each other, we you know, depend on each other, you know, we can probably live lives that are much healthier. The institution is no different. Frank, thank you for joining me today. Um, Robert, thank you for joining me. It sounds like... Uh... Like we have a long way to go, but I think the university, just as you've said, is in a much better place than it was 10 years ago. I, I think uh, we're doing a much better job of connecting to our community and, and, and will hopefully continue to to do a better job of responding to the community and, and growing with our community. Uh, so thank you all. <laughs>